Well, let's open God's word. Romans chapter 8. The greatest chapter, I think, in the Bible. This chapter is packed full of theology. Packed full of encouragement. It's really the peak of the book of Romans, which is already the, the Himalayas. This would be Mount Everest here. And the peak of chapter 8 is Romans 8, 28-30. This is the high point. This is the tip. This is that place that we have been working towards for many months, years really in Romans. But all of Romans is important. I'm not saying that those verses that we covered already aren't important. They're God's word. Every one of them taught us the truth that God wanted us to know. But here we see something that really comforts us. Here we see in Romans 8, 28 through 30, a passage of scripture that should give every believer hope, assurance, and comfort. It's really sad that so many have wasted time arguing over this passage and wasted time sort of arguing against what the passage teaches when it is so helpful to us. We looked at Romans 8, 28 a few weeks ago. We started uh, this unbreakable chain that starts in Romans 8, 29 and runs through 30. So let me read that whole passage to you here, starting in 828. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose, because those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to become conformed to the image of his son, so that he would be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called, and those whom he called, he also justified, and those whom he justified, he also glorified. This passage is about God's sovereignty in man's salvation. This passage here is about the doctrine of God's sovereignty in our salvation. It's meant to give us encouragement. It should give us encouragement. There's five links here, five massive pillars or links in a chain. They are often called the golden chain or the unbreakable chain, which is what I've titled it, of salvation. The unbreakable chain of redemption. So that's what we've been looking at since we started verse 29. And you see there that he says in 28, he talks about how God works all things together for his people. And not just working them together, but they're for your good. If you're his, if you're called, if you love God, same people, those who are called, those who love God, he's working everything together for your good. Not for your happiness, not for your comfort, but for your ultimate good. And then he begins this chain in verse 29. Those whom he for, And that's the same group that he's predestined. That's the next link in the chain. And we looked at those two last time that I preached. And the predestined is towards the ultimate goal of being conformed to the image of his son. We're to be conformed to the image of Christ. Yes, we are saved. And yes, God predestines all those who will be saved. And he makes sure that they will be saved. But the ultimate goal is not just us. It's not just check mark for heaven. But it's to be conformed to the image of Christ. You see there in verse 29. It says. He is the firstborn among many brothers. The first to be glorified in the body. The first to go on to heaven. Where we will be with him one day. Foreknowledge. The first link. Is not God looking forward, just to remind you, we covered this, but it's not God looking forward in time to learn something. 
God's never learned anything. God knows all things. That's what it means to be omniscient. That first link is not God looking forward to learn something, but God deciding that he would have an intimate relationship, a salvific relationship with a people. We call that, and the Bible calls that, the elect. That's not made up. That's in Scripture. The elect. God chose people for his own possession. He knew them, like the Bible says, when a man knows his wife. He knew them in a very close, intimate relationship because he decided, he decreed that he would save them. And that same group, it says he predestined. Predestined simply means to mark out beforehand. He chose them and he marked them out beforehand that they would eventually come to salvation and be conformed to the image of his son. This is really high theology here in the book of Romans, in Romans 8 here. High theology. That God has chosen a people for his own possession. That he's made sure they would be saved. That he's called them in time. That they are indeed justified when he calls them and they believe in Christ and repent of their sins. We'll look at justification next week. And then they will be glorified. In fact, notice it's in the past tense. He also glorified them. Past tense meaning it's a done deal. It's going to happen for certain. And we'll look at glorification and its own separate sermon as well. This is really where the rubber meets the road on your theology of God, of man, and salvation. All three of those major doctrines that the Bible teaches come together right here. And you have to decide if you're going to go with what Scripture says or what you might have heard somewhere else. What you might have heard in another church, a book. A lot of these self-proclaimed prophets and self-proclaimed scholars on the internet will go to great lengths to disprove this passage, the plain meaning of this passage. Steve Lawson has rightly said on this issue of God's sovereignty and salvation that it's like a continental divide of all theology. He says it's like the continental divide in America running along a series of mountain ranges. If one drop falls on the eastern side, it will eventually end up in the Atlantic Ocean. If it's on the western side where that drop falls, it goes to the Pacific Ocean. And it's the same here on these important doctrines. If you believe the Bible... If you believe what's being taught in this passage, then that will only lead to a certain belief system when it comes to the doctrine of God, when it comes to the doctrine of man, when it comes to the doctrine of salvation. I call that the biblical teaching on salvation. But there's another teaching on salvation. It's been popular throughout church history. It's often just called the free will theology. One man in church history named Pelagian went so far as to say, we didn't need Christ. We could just be good enough of ourselves. We could decide to follow God. We could obey God perfectly. And even though it was declared heresy in church history early on, it keeps cropping up, doesn't it? This idea that you can be good enough to save yourself. That you really don't need Christ. He's kind of there, Pelagius thought, as a helper, in case you can't do it yourself. More common even today is semi-Pelagian believes that the natural state of every human being is spiritually and morally sick. So there is something wrong with us. We're just kind of sick and we need a helper. But because we're sick and not dead, they say, we can make the first move. God's just waiting. He's waiting with open arms. He's a, he's a gentleman and he's just waiting for you 
to do something, you to earn something, you to work towards him, and then he will come along and help you. And of course, we see here in this passage, and I'm going to open up for you in other passages as well, that's not the case. Where do you see in Romans 8.28 or 8.29 or 8.30 anything about you working towards God? Oh, you say, Pastor, it says those who love God in 28. Yeah, those who are called according to his purpose. And that's the topic today. Divinely called. Who are those who love God? Those who are called. Those who are called. And who does the calling is the question. Who does the saving? Do you save yourself? If somebody was to ask you, why are you saved? He's a smart guy. He's got his, I don't know, whatever degrees. He makes a lot of money. How come you're saved? Is it because you're smarter than him? Is it because you were more godly first and then you got saved? Why are you saved and not your neighbor, your family members who are unbelievers? Because of God. We can never pat ourselves on the back and say, I did something. I earned it. I worked my way. I knew all the stuff about God. And one day I just decided to pull up my boots and get after it and run to God. Now you may think that's what happened. If you're a new believer, sometimes we do think that. But now we look at scripture and we see a different story. We see behind the veil. You see, when we were unbelievers, we couldn't see behind the veil. Sometimes we interview new members and they, they're about to come into the church and they say, I just love the Lord and I tell everybody about Jesus. And often if they're just saved, they're so on fire for the Lord. And they say, it's so sad because people won't listen. They won't listen. Unbelievers don't listen. I'm telling them about Christ and all he's done because their heart is hardened. There's a veil. There's a veil over their eyes. And when you're saved, God lifts that. So that's all by way of introduction. Now let's get into divine calling. Divine calling. Let's see what the Bible has to say about this. I'm going to go through three points on divine calling. The need for effectual calling or divine calling. The act of effectual calling. So why do we need it first of all? And what does God do to bring it about? And then we're going to apply that. The application of effectual divine calling. So first of all, the need. And this is so important. Even when I talked about calling on verse 28. We didn't go into the need for it. Why is it needed? Why is it needed? Why is divine calling needed? Simply because without divine calling, man would be lost forever. If God did not call you and change your heart, believer, you would never have believed. This just kills our prideful, works-based thinking. Even as a Christian, sometimes we think we really did something to convince God to save us. Without divine calling, man would be lost forever. No one would ever believe the gospel. Now, the Bible gives two reasons for this. And I want to work through these passages slowly because it is so clear that a person cannot save themselves and cannot even take the first step towards God. And that's completely opposite than what our culture teaches and what modern Christianity teaches. I wish I could just say that and we could go on. But because we've been indoctrinated for hundreds of years now, thousands even, as I said, that man can make the first move towards God, that man can save himself. First of all, the reason, two reasons here, that we have a need for effectual calling. 
The first one is that man is totally unwilling. Totally unwilling. That's the key word. Unwilling. There's a lot of talk about free will. Man is totally unwilling to come to Christ in faith and repentance due to an evil heart inherited from Adam. Another theological phrase you need to write down if you're taking notes, total depravity. That's what this is, total depravity. Man is unwilling. He doesn't want to come to Christ. Yes, he wants his marriage fixed. He wants his life fixed. He wants his financial problems fixed. He wants all these problems fixed, but he doesn't come to Christ and doesn't want to come to Christ for the right reasons because he's depraved. He's sinful. Theologians call that total depravity. Does the Bible really teach this? Here's some verses. And we'll look at some of these. If you want to go back to Romans 3, I'm headed there. But Genesis 6, 5, right in the beginning. Then Yahweh saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. And that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Why did the flood come upon the earth? Because man was wicked. So wicked that he was willing to give his daughters to demons. And the flood came upon the earth and wiped man out. Well, after that, certainly from Noah's family on, it was good, right? Everything was fine? No, in fact, Noah gets off the ark. He gets drunk. There's all this sin in his family. And God says it again. If you read Genesis 8, very similar statement. That man is wicked, evil. Ecclesiastes 9.3, Solomon is pontificating about all these things in life that people try to run after instead of God. And he says, the hearts of the sons of men are full of evil and insanity is in their hearts throughout their lives. I thought the Bible was just a happy book supposed to make us joyful. Well, it does. But first, you need to be convicted of your sin. And we see this message from Genesis to Revelation. Mankind is evil and sinful. In its natural state after the fall of Adam and Eve, mankind is evil. That's what his will is bent towards. His will is bent towards evil. Our free will is basically the decision of how much we're going to sin today and what sins they're going to be until Christ saves us. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is more deceitful than all else and is desperately sick. Romans 3, 10. I told you to go there. This is where Paul spent three chapters in the beginning of Romans building his case here. Because in every generation, there's people who say, man is born good. Frank was teaching this morning on Freemasonry and how they're wanting to help good men be better. As if there's such a thing as a good man before they come to Christ. I know in society we say that they're good people. And in the common grace sense, they do things for society. They do things to help us. In that sense, they're good, but not according to God's standard. And we see this very clear here in Romans 3.10. This is without a doubt, and Paul quotes the Old Testament. So whether Old or New Testament you have this statement, Romans 3.10, as it is written in the Bible, in the Old Testament, there is none righteous, not even one. There's none who understands. There's none who seeks for God. There's a whole movement in church today called the seeker-friendly movement. And while some of them may have had the right motive to begin with, try to get people into the church, the majority of that movement and the people who started it and those who are still doing it today are actually going against what this verse says. There's no one who actually seeks for God. It's fine to welcome unbelievers into the church. Church, of course, is made up of believers. 
But it's good to welcome unbelievers in, let them hear the gospel. We pray that they'll be saved. But you can't set up everything in the church for those who seek after God. Because actually, when it comes down to the heart level, Paul says no one seeks after God. And he's quoting here from the Old Testament. From Most of these are Psalms. There's no one who's righteous. Of their own ability, no one is righteous. You realize that? Not even the nicest unbeliever you've ever known in your life. It says there's no one righteous. Not even one. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. There is none who does good. There's not even one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they keep deceiving. The poison of asps is under their lips. Whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their paths. And the path of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. This is the natural state of man. He's just talked about all the Gentiles and all the Jews. And he says, this summarizes it. Let me just quote the Old Testament. He says, no one is righteous. And then he goes into the gospel right after that. We won't read it, but if you have time later, read Romans 3.21 through the end of chapter 3. That's why we need the gospel. If we were already righteous, we wouldn't even need Christ. We wouldn't need the cross. We could just blow it off and be like Pelagius and say, we'll do it ourselves. But Paul says, because nobody is righteous, we all need Christ. We all need the gospel. John 3.19, Jesus says, this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light for their deeds were evil. Evil. You know, it gets worse though. Not only is man totally depraved and depraved just means wicked, evil, and totally not meaning that he's the worst he could be, not meaning that everybody's Hitler, but that his whole person is corrupt. Man in his natural state means his whole person is corrupt, meaning the mind, the body, desires, the will, any way you want to slice up man. And that way, it's all corrupted by sin. But also, it gets worse. Number two, second reason we need God to call us, to change our hearts, to draw us, is that man is totally unable to come to Christ. Unable. This is total inability. There's total depravity. That speaks of the corruption of the person. We're all born that way. Even that little beautiful child that comes out of the womb, everybody says they look so great, so awesome, so cute. They're going to be sinning as soon as they can. They're going to be throwing a fit and throwing things around the house as soon as they can. And they will continue to sin. And even Christians sin, but the difference is they have been redeemed. And we'll come to that. They've been called. They've been regenerated. Total inability. We're looking at total inability. Number one was unwilling. Man is unwilling. He doesn't want to. He doesn't desire it. He desires to sin. And he'll only come to God if God can maybe... Do a little trade. Come on, God, I'll be good. I'll do this if you'll take this thing, this pain away. If you'll just bless me, give me finances. But he's not really willing to come to God for the right reason. But the second reason here says that he's unable. Mankind is unable to come to God. Is that really in the Bible? Multiple places. Here's what Jesus says. John 6, no one. Certainly there's someone, right? No, Jesus said no one. No one can, that's able. Can means ability. Teacher, can I go to the bathroom? Are you able to go to the bathroom, student? 
right? You're supposed to say, may I? But can is talking about ability. No one can come to me, Jesus says, unless this thing happens. The Father who sent me draws him. God the Father has to draw. God the Father has to call. God the Father has to change the heart before a person can come to Christ. Why is it that people are not able to come to Christ? What is it that is stopping them? Why does Jesus say that? No one can. 1 Corinthians 2. Go to 1 Corinthians 2. This is the key verse because it incorporates both of what we just looked at. Unwilling and unable. Since the fall, sin has corrupted us so that we're fully corrupt and don't want to come. The natural man doesn't want to come to Christ. And the natural man is unable. There's something broken. 1 Corinthians 2.14. Let's start back in verse 6 so you get the picture. Yet we, do speak, yet we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are being abolished. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The things of God. The wisdom which has been hidden, which God predestined before the ages to our glory. Which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard, and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. But to us, to believers, God revealed them through the Spirit. So God reveals the truth to those who are his, and he does it through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the depths of a man except the Spirit of the man which is in him. Even so, the depths of God, no one knows except the Spirit of God. So if you want to truly know God, the only way is for the Spirit to indwell you, to change your heart, to come into your life. That happens at salvation. Now, verse 12. Now we have received, not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, so that we may know the depths graciously given to us by God, of which depths we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual depths with spiritual words. The believer is taught spiritual things. Now we have the Bible complete, so the Spirit works through us as we read the Bible, as we hear it preached, as we study it to grow. We learn spiritual things about God. But look at verse 14 now. There's a contrast. But a natural man. Who's the natural man? Somebody that's not a Christian, somebody that doesn't have the Spirit. All of us, when we come into the world, John the Baptist would be the only exception. Of course, Jesus, but he's a special exception. John the Baptist had the Spirit in the womb. But not, uh, verse 14, a natural man does not accept the depths of the Spirit of God. So that's about his uh, willingness. He, he doesn't accept it. He rejects it. I don't want to hear that. You ever had somebody say, I don't want to hear that. Don't talk to me about Jesus anymore. I don't want to hear that. But look at the other thing. So there's, first of all, he doesn't accept it. He's unwilling. But what else does it say? He cannot understand them. Right? He, he doesn't accept it because they're foolishness to him. And number two, he cannot understand them because they are spiritually examined. He's not able. He doesn't have the Holy Spirit. The point Paul is making there is if you don't have the Spirit, you don't understand the things of God. So mankind has to be called by God. God has to do something first before we can come to him. The natural man is unwilling to believe the gospel. The natural man cannot understand these spiritual things. He is unable. Sin has corrupted his mind. 
But on top of that, Satan has blinded the eyes. The Bible says Satan has blinded the eyes of our minds before we come to Christ. 2 Corinthians 4, 3. And even if our gospel is veiled, it's veiled to those who are perishing. And in whose case, the God of this world, the God of this world, I think he's talking about Satan here, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Did you, Christian, did you have the power to take that veil off that Satan put on your mind? When you came to Christ, were you doing that? I know there's a lot of talk about rebuking Satan, binding Satan. Christ does that. We don't do that. He does that for us when we come to him. He enables us to come to him. You did not have the power to unbind the devil covering your spiritual mind. Only God can do that. We were dead in sin. Ephesians 2, 1 to 2. And you were dead in your trespasses and sin. Not just sick, but dead in which you formerly walked according to the course of this world. You lived according to the course of this world? According to the prince of the power of the air? That's Satan? Of the spirit that is now working in the sons of disobedience? When I was preaching through Ephesians, came to this passage. And I said, you were all devil worshipers before you came to Christ. Everybody just looked at me. That's crazy. Paul says we were, whether we knew it or not. We were running our race according to the prince of the power of the air. That's Satan. The unbeliever doesn't have to go and put pentagrams out and go to satanic rituals. They're living for themselves, which is the same thing that Satan wants them to do. Running according to the prince of the power of the air. There's just so many passages in scripture telling us that man in his natural state cannot come to God by his own power. God's just crushing man's sinful pride here. He wants the unbeliever to hear, you've got to rely on God. You can't work your way. And he wants the believer to hear, look what God has done for you. That's where Paul goes in Ephesians 2. You were dead. And what can a dead man do? Steve Lawson says a dead man can only stink. That's all a dead man can do is stink. Can a dead man get up and come of his own ability? Did Lazarus walk out of the tomb and say, you don't need to call me, Jesus. I'm already able to do it. He's dead. Dead man can't do anything. Romans one twenty one, For even though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks, but they became futile on their speculations, so their foolish heart was darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools. One more. We're going to get to some good news. Trust me. We're going to get to some good news, but one more. Romans 8, since we're there, Romans 8, 7. Because the mindset on the flesh is hostile toward God. So the mindset on the spirit, the person who has the spirit, has their mindset on the spirit. They have their mindset on God. But the natural man, the unsaved person, their mind is set on death. They're set set on the flesh. For it does not subject itself to the law of God. The unbeliever doesn't care really what God says. For it is not even able to do so. Again, ability. You see that word, able? Not able. You can't. It's, It's broken. The path that was there for Adam to walk with God every day in the garden is now cut off. It's broken. We need Christ to restore that. And look at verse 8. This is as clear as he can get here. And those who are in the flesh are not able to please God. Those in the flesh, the natural man, without Christ, without the Spirit, is not able to please God. There is no ability to please God. This is why Jesus said in John 3, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is 
born again. You must be born again to see the kingdom, he tells Nicodemus. You cannot even see the kingdom of God until you've been born again. And Nicodemus throws out some objections. Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. God must give us a new heart, new eyes to see, new ears to hear, or we will not listen to him at all. We need God's mercy. We need God's grace to be saved. And for the believer, we look at this and say, praise God that he did save me because I could do nothing. We're all poor, blind beggars, just waiting for God to open our eyes so that we might come to him. That's why we need divine calling. We were bent on sin. We were hardened. We were turned away from God. If you're a believer here today, if you're truly regenerate, if you're trusting in Christ, if you have faith in him, you turn from your sin, you have seen that this is true in the Bible. You have seen who you really were before you came to Christ. And you can know that God will save you. That he will make sure you make it to the end. That's the whole point of this passage. But that's just point number one. All right, number two, the act of divine calling. So all that bad news, pastor, where's the good news? Well, the good news when it comes to calling is that we see that God saves his elect through the divine act of summoning them to come to Christ and gives them the ability to exercise faith and repentance. You might think, pastor, look, I know the Bible says we can't come to Christ, but we are told to have faith and repentance, aren't we? Aren't we told, come, Jesus says, come to me, all you, all you who are heavy laden, all that have burdens. Yes, we do have to have faith and repentance. But let's go one step right before that, right before you have faith and repentance and ask, how were you able to do that? How did you go from not being able to please God, not being able to come to God to suddenly having faith and repentance? God did something. God divinely called you. Let me give you the theological definition. I did this a few weeks ago for divine calling. It's the immediate and instantaneous summons of God. It's a summons. Not that he is speaking to you, but he is doing something. He is sending a message, if you want to use that phrase, sending a message from God the Father. And it's also the work of God the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is doing something too. So the Father is calling and the Spirit is coming to change your heart. So it's immediate and instantaneous divine summons of God the Father and the work of the Holy Spirit by which man's mind is savingly enlightened to understand the gospel. That's so important. Man's mind is enlightened. He can now see what he could not see. He could now understand what he could not understand. Man's mind is savingly enlightened to understand the gospel. So that's one problem, right? And man's will is completely empowered. God gives you now the power to come to him. The calling means that God is changing your mind so you can see what you couldn't see before because Satan had blinded you and your own sin had blinded you. And your will is completely empowered and moved to saving faith in the Lord Jesus. So God breaks all those hindrances that were keeping you from coming to Christ. Then you have faith and then you repent. Now there's two callings in the Bible. I've, I've mentioned these before. There's the general call. The general call is the gospel being preached. When you tell somebody else about the gospel, that's a general call. Everybody, Jesus says, come to me all. 
All. That's the general call. Many are called, Jesus says, but few are chosen. So there's the general call. Many are called. Many hear the gospel when Jesus preached, but not all came to him. Why? Because few are chosen. So there's a divine calling, and that's special. It's personal, and it always succeeds. The general call doesn't. You can tell somebody the gospel. You can tell 500 people. You can tell hundreds of people the gospel, and there's no guarantee they will come. But when God calls, they will come. Now, God works through the general call, right? It says, and we'll come to that in Romans 10, you must have somebody tell the person the gospel before God then will exercise his divine call. But that's all in his power and his means. It's all part of his plan. So we're talking here about this divine call, this effectual. And it's effectual because it will have its effect. It will succeed. It's not as if God calls and sits back and says, I'm just waiting, waiting for Mr. Beck here to believe. Maybe someday he will. It's instantaneous. God has those whom he foreknew. God has those same group that he predestined. And in time, in your lifespan, if you're a believer, he called you. And that was the moment you had faith. Sometimes this is called regeneration. It's really just the flip side. The Father's calling. The Holy Spirit is regenerating. See that in Titus 3 and other places. Sometimes it's called circumcision of the heart, using that Old Testament image of circumcision. Paul talked about this in Romans 2. John 6, Jesus talked about being drawn to him by the Father. Sometimes it's called the new birth. Sometimes it's being born again, being made alive, given a heart of flesh, opening the heart, Acts 16, which we'll look at, and being called out of darkness into God's marvelous light. And a really clear picture, made a new creation. 2 Corinthians 5, the believer is now made a new creation in Christ. All terms that point back to this divine calling and regeneration combo. So while many people hear the general call, only the elect receive the effectual call. Look at Romans 8.30 again. Those whom he predestined, he also called. Those whom he called, he also justified. Those whom he justified, he also glorified. All the people that God predestined are called. And all that are called will have faith because faith is required for justification. Paul's already spent chapters on that in Romans. You can't be justified without faith in Christ. He's not looking at what we do here in Romans 8.30. He's looking at what God does. God predestines, God calls, God justifies, God glorifies. Yes, we must have faith, but he's already talked about that previously in Romans. You know, Jesus says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Nets don't drag themselves, right? Nets don't drag themselves. The fisherman didn't throw out the net, and then it would drag itself in. The person had to grab the net and drag it. And here, the idea is what Jesus is talking about in John 6, is that God is doing the drawing. God is doing the drawing. Also, Acts eleven sixteen. Let's look at some of these. So I want you to see how God grants faith and repentance. It's not your own work. Yes, you do exercise it. But after you're saved, you look back and you realize, oh, God, God did it. He didn't exercise his faith. He gave you the ability to exercise your faith. Acts eleven sixteen. Let's start there. We're going to go through Acts, then the Ephesians 2. Then 2 Timothy, if you want to follow along. So Acts eleven sixteen, The Jewish Christians are really upset with Peter. He's gone to the Gentiles. Peter's teaching them about how God has called the Gentiles as well. Now the gospel has moved out from just the Jewish audience to the Gentiles. 
And it says in Acts eleven sixteen, when they heard this, the Jewish Christians, they quieted down and they glorified God saying, well, then God has granted to the Gentiles also the repentance that leads to life. What did repentance ultimately come from? It comes from God granting us the ability to repent. When he changes our heart, we want to repent, turn from our sins and turn to Christ. Acts 13, 48, Paul's now in Pisidian Antioch. And when the Gentiles heard this, it says, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. Who believed? Those who had been appointed to eternal life. By who? By God. Let's go to Acts 16 now. Go to Acts 16. And verse 14. This is very clear here. Paul's out. He goes to Philippi. He goes out of the gate to the river. He's thinking maybe there'll be a prayer group out there with uh, the Jewish people who go to synagogue. And he finds some women. They start talking to them about the gospel. And Acts 16, 14, a woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God. So she worshiped God in the Jewish sense. She was listening. And it says, whose heart the Lord opened to pay attention to the things spoken by Paul. Who opened her heart? Did she open her heart? God opened her heart. God did it. Ephesians 2, 8, my favorite verse really in the New Testament because it encapsulates God's sovereignty. It encapsulates our faith, all of this. Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith. You've been saved by God's grace. And that happened through your faith. And then just to make it clear, he says, and that not of yourselves. It's the gift of God. You can't say, great job. I had faith. Great job. It's the gift of God. God God gifted you the ability to have faith. We learn in other passages that's through a new heart. And that's so you can't boast. It even says in in Ephesians 2.9, you can't boast. You can't boast. It's not according to works. And faith would be a work if it was all on us. right? Let's just get enough faith. Let's just really get after it and we can have enough faith. No, it's according to God. 2 Timothy 2.24. And the Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome. He's talking here to Timothy about elders, about leaders in the church. He must be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. If perhaps God may give them repentance, leading to the full knowledge of the truth. Who gives repentance? God. Who gives faith? God. Do we exercise it? Yes. But ultimately, we thank God for it because he's the one who granted it to us. Just to throw in one from the Old Testament, and this is important because it's a new covenant promise God gives in Ezekiel 36. Ezekiel 36, 26. Moreover, God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit, little, little s spirit. You'll have new desires. You'll have new willingness to follow God. He says, I'll give you a new heart. I'll put a new spirit in you and I'll remove the heart of stone. The heart of stone is the heart that's hard, that doesn't want to believe in God, that's not able to please God. He says, I'm taking that out and I'm putting in a heart of flesh, a real heart that beats for him. And I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. He says, I'll put my Holy Spirit, that's spirit there, capital S, within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to do my judgments. God doesn't say here, I'll wait for you to decide, and I'll wait for you 
to come to me. And I'll wait for you to work towards me. Now, the Jews would have read this, those who were in fear of God and those who were following God, the saints of the Old Testament, they would have said, praise the Lord. We're going to have the Holy Spirit someday. The new covenant is a new promise with the Spirit. They wouldn't have sat there and said, well, that violates my free will. You know, God, that violates my free will. I don't think I'm going to like that. Who doesn't want the Holy Spirit to walk according to how God wants us to walk? Who doesn't want to be saved? Leave the free will philosophizing to the philosophers. Let's go with what the Bible says. God does all the work in drawing men and women to himself. He overcomes our resistance. He removes our hardened heart so that we may repent and believe. The old Puritan Thomas Watson had this great illustration on this topic. He says, God rides forth conquering in the chariot of his gospel. He conquers the pride of the heart. He makes the will which stood out as a fort royale, he makes the will to yield and stoop to his grace. He makes the stony heart bleed. Oh, it is a mighty call, this divine calling. This is simply the five solos of the Reformation. That's, that's all Paul is talking about later in the Reformation. They encapsulate it here into five solos. Solos was Latin for alone. Well, salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, on the basis of Christ alone, for the glory of God alone, all interpreted on the basis of Scripture alone. By grace alone, though. That's how it starts. It's by grace alone. I need to remind you, God does not force anybody to come. He does not force anyone into heaven. Sometimes people hear this idea and they think, well, that's, that's just too much. God is dragging people into heaven who are kicking and screaming. And sometimes that's a misinterpretation of what's often said as irresistible grace. If you've ever heard of the acronym TULIP, the I is irresistible grace. And it is irresistible. Truly it is. You don't resist it when God changes your heart. But that's a misinterpretation to say God's dragging people, kicking and screaming. No one is forced to come because no one wants to come unless God changes their heart. Think about that for a second. The Bible says no one wants to come. And then you hear these other people saying, well, God doesn't force people. Right. Because no one wants to come until God changes their heart. No one would ever come until God changes their heart. The call itself brings the effect that it demands, which is faith in Christ. In the effectual calling, God conquers the resistance of a sinful person. And then they want to come. He doesn't have to drag. He doesn't want to do that. He doesn't do that. He changes the heart. No one ever has been brought, and I remember R.C. Sproul saying this, no one's ever been brought kicking and screaming into heaven. God changes our minds. He changes our wills so that we want to come to him. Here's how Charles Spurgeon said it. And Spurgeon was great on this. He would say, you can't come unless God draws you. And then he would say, and some of you will come now. You will believe today. And he would preach a whole sermon on how God is sovereign and people will believe this moment today. And he will call them with the general call. Spurgeon said, a man is not saved against his will, but he is made willing by the operation of the Holy Spirit. A mighty grace, Spurgeon says, which he does not wish to resist. The person does not want to resist this mighty grace. It enters into the man. It disarms him. It makes a new creature of him and he is saved. The Holy Spirit comes and he does a work and you want to come. The moment he does that, 
you want to come. You all know of a time, unless you were really young, it may, it may be fuzzy, you don't remember, but most of you know of a time when this work happened in your heart and you wanted to come to God. There wasn't that resistance anymore. Man is still responsible to come. He's still responsible to have faith. The Bible still calls that, but no one would come unless God the Spirit first moved in their hearts. Great theologian Herman Bavink said, God's effectually calling is so powerful that it cannot be conquered and yet so loving that it excludes all force. So when God calls, it will happen. But it's so loving, no one would resist it that's actually called. Not only is God going to make sure that doesn't happen, but no one wants to resist that call. God changes the heart. It's really simply the love of God being shown to you and I. Christians, when you look back on how this happened, and you didn't know it at the time, you didn't see it happening, but it was happening, the Bible says, before you had faith. This is God's love. This is God's love for you. Number three, let's look now at the application of divine calling. How do we apply this teaching? So here it is. It's all over the Bible. It's all over the New Testament. Paul uses this word calling a lot in his letters. It came up right away. He talks about being called himself in Romans 1, verse 5, I think it is. And he talks of it all the way through. The first way that we should respond as believers is that it gives us assurance. Have comfort and assurance. That is why it's in this passage. God wants us to see those who are saved can now look back and know they were foreknown by God. They were predestined by God. They were called. They were justified. And they certainly will be glorified. All of chapter 8 is about assurance. Really, 5 through 8 is all about assurance. Now, he took a, a bit of a sidetrack there in chapter 6 and 7 to say some things about Adam and the law. But the whole point of chapters 5, 6, 7, and 8 is that the believer who's justified, the person who's justified, can have assurance. And he's going to finish that out in the next few verses in chapter 8 when we get there. That's what it's there for. Who can separate us from the love of God? If God has predestined you, do you think you can fall out of his hand? If God has called you, you think you can run away from him and he won't draw you back? You can backslide for a little while, but he will bring you back just like he did Jonah. That's the main application right here. That's the point Paul wants us to get right here. We can have confidence that during the sufferings that God brings upon us in our life, during the trials and tribulations that God puts us through, what happens? We will be persevered. We can have comfort. Just like Spurgeon said, God's sovereignty is the pillow that you lay down on. It's comforting. You can sleep soundly because God's in control. It doesn't mean you can run out and sin all you want. But you know that if you do fall, which we all do, we struggle, we're weak. God's not going to cast us out. All of Romans 8 has been about that. You have the Spirit. You've been adopted as His Son. You're adopted into His family. He won't cast you out. God is for us who can be against us. That's the point. Now let's make some other applications briefly. Number two, it's a reason to praise God. We should praise God for him calling us. 2 Thessalonians 2.13, Paul says, but we should always give thanks to God. So Paul's praying for the Thessalonians. He says, we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. God has 
chosen them, he says, and he gives thanks to God. It's praise to God. Salvation's all of God. God's grace preceded your faith. Either God saves or we save ourselves. You can't have it both ways. This is why it's such a continental divide. And if God saves, which the Bible says he does, then we ought to praise him. It's, it's one of the reasons we worship him. We worship him because he's God, first of all, but he saved us. I mean, this should inform our praise. It should drive our praise, not just in church, but personally in your life. You just think, I praise God on Sunday. Will he just save you on Sunday and then the rest of the week you're not saved? Praise him all week. Praise him in your family. Praise him in your own quiet time. Thomas Boston said that the divine calling is when believers are brought out of the devil's family and made members of the household of faith. Not servants only, but sons. He says, look, you were a slave of the devil and he brought you out of the devil's family and didn't make you just a slave, but he made you a son. He adopted you, God did, in his family. Praise the Lord. Let's give thanks to him. Number three, it's a reason for evangelism. It's a reason for evangelism. Well, how's that? God's doing the calling. Yeah, and you've got to proclaim the gospel. Paul's been doing that the whole book of Romans. He's going to make it very specific in chapter 10 of Romans, verse 14. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they've not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How can they call on God if they don't hear the gospel? And how can they hear the gospel without a preacher? Or today we would say, without hearing it somehow or reading it, they have to hear about Christ and what he's done and how we're sinners and how we're to repent and turn to him in faith. This is a reason for evangelism because we know if we give the gospel, it doesn't guarantee everybody's going to be saved. And yet God will call people. As we're going about our life, sowing the seed, God works and whom he will work and they will come. Not everybody believed when Paul preached. Not everybody believed when Jesus preached. Are you going to be a better evangelist than Jesus? You've just got to proclaim the gospel. Talk to people about your faith. Talk to people about Christ. God will call through that. He will use your speaking to others about the gospel to send his divine call, but it's all been predestined. The success is not dependent on us. We don't go home beating ourselves up thinking, man, I talked to that person for an hour about the gospel. They rejected it. It's my fault they're going to hell. You know, I had somebody tell me that as a new Christian. If you don't get out there and talk to everybody and make them believe, it's your fault they're going to hell. That really scared me for a little while. God is... Guaranteed success for the Great Commission. He said his elector out there. The father of the missionary movement said, I'm going to India because God has called people from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation. And I'm going there because God has his people there. I don't know who they are, but I'm going. Number four, it's a reason for holy living. Paul talks about this. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter. The calling is something we look back to and it reminds us we need to live for the Lord. He called us. Ephesians 4.1, therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord, Paul says, implore you. He's strongly encouraging them to walk in a manner worthy of, not their faith, but the calling. Walk in a worthy, live out your life in a way that is worthy of the calling with which you have been called. 
That's the calling he's talking about. God called you not to live in sin as a Christian. God has saved you. Now live for him. Walk in a way that's worthy, that matches your calling. Do you walk in a way that, that shines forth the gospel to the world? Not in the sense that you're living a holy life and it zaps people to the gospel in their mind. But are they looking at you and they're hearing that you're a Christian and you're actually walking in a way that's in accordance, that matches with the calling that God has done in you? You should be. You live as the one who's called by God. We must read the word regularly with the purpose to believe what it says and to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Let's read it. Let's obey it. Let's believe it. And let's live it out. That's what it means to walk according to the calling with which you have been called. So what is this doctrine of divine or effectual calling? Simply this. You did not make yourself a Christian. God did. That's what divine calling is. God did it. And what's interesting, I found this yesterday. I was looking around for a good hymn. I had amazing grace at the end of this sermon. But I decided, no, I, I quote that too much. It's a great one, though. It, it talks about this. But I found an old hymn by Charles Wesley, which is kind of interesting because his brother, John Wesley, started the Methodist movement along with uh, George Whitfield. Whitfield believed in God's sovereignty and salvation, but John Wesley didn't like that idea. He said, man can choose. He's the one who really propounded free will. But his brother, Charles Wesley, was often swayed to agree more with George Whitfield. They both wrote hymns, but Charles Wesley wrote a lot more hymns. And one of his hymns that we don't sing today, but I found it, uh, I like this one stanza. It's called Effectual Calling. So the hymn is called Effectual Calling. And the last line reads, With softening outlook and melt my hardness down. Strike with thy love's restless stroke and break this heart of stone. That is so true when it comes to God's effectual call. He strikes our heart, breaks it up, and gives us a new one that beats and loves him. Let's thank him and praise him right now. Lord, we thank you for teaching us the things we did not know. If we just came to faith, we wouldn't know these things without looking at your word. We're thankful that we can grow. We can understand what you've done for us. Your, your work in our salvation. We know that you, you work and uphold all things. You created all things. But little, poor, sinful me, you called, you saved. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you that you have saved everyone in this room. And we pray, Lord, that you would work in the lives of those who are unbelievers here today. Help them to hear this truth. And they would pray to you. And they would beg of you to save them as well. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.